Back in 1936, in a small publishing company in London, uh, one of the junior employees stumbled on a manuscript that was unpublished. A father had written a book for his children, and that book had gotten passed around, never being actually published formally. And so this employee wrote to this father and tried to convince him that this book needed to see the light of day, that this book had a much bigger audience than his own family. Well, that author agreed to have his book submitted to be published, and a year later, the, the world discovered that book. It's called The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, Tolkien went on to describe the world of Middle-earth in living color, and the world knows that story. Uh, in the last few years, that turned into an epic trilogy uh, with these characters right here. But, but in the days after Tolkien published The Hobbit, um, he struggled. And, and one night he went to bed and he woke up in the middle of the night in the early hours of the morning after having a very vivid dream. And in that dream, he literally witnessed in his mind a full story. And he sat down and tried to write it as fast as he could. The story came out whole and he wrote it and it became this little book right here that most of you have never heard of. You've heard of The Hobbit, and you've heard of The Lord of the Rings, but you've probably not heard of Leaf by Niggle. It's one of Tolkien's least known books, and it follows the life of a man named Niggle, which is about as weird a name as it gets. Niggle was a peculiar man. He was a painter. He wasn't actually a very good painter either, um, and he is highly distractible. And so he's, he's working on this one particular painting for most of his life. It's, it's a tree, and he spends hours on the intricate details of each little leaf, but he continues to get interrupted, interrupted, and interrupted. And I don't know about you, but if I'm working on something and I just can't get it done, I start to lose my mind. And that's kind of where Niggle is, because he's beginning to get this sense that, that his life is coming to an end, and he's not going to finish the work that he wanted to do. And so he tries to ignore people. He tries to be mean to people. Finally, his neighbor gets, gets uh, in his face, and he says, my wife is sick, and our roof is caved, and we need help. So Niggle gets on his bicycle. He goes to find the local carpenter and the local doctor, and they come back, only to discover the wife wasn't really that sick. But the problem now is Niggle is sick. And from his deathbed, he begins to realize that he's never going to finish his painting. And all sorts of questions begin to rise up in the mind and heart of Niggle. Questions that I think we're all very familiar with. Questions like, what if I don't finish this thing I'm working on? Questions like, what difference does it make that I work so hard? Questions like, will any of this matter? I'll tell you the rest of the Niggle story in a little bit. But regardless of what age you are, these are the questions that if you haven't asked, you will eventually ask. Did my life matter? What difference did all that hard work make? Am I going to actually finish and complete these things that are so important to me? And it's these questions that we're going to talk about today as we conclude our series called Faith at Work. 
Someone did point out that we take this stuff so seriously as a church that we're taking tomorrow off to rest, and that is actually true. Um, so, so yeah, we, we believe in work and rest. So if you come to see us at work tomorrow, you're not going to find us. But in this series called Faith at Work, we've been talking about how we bridge this massive gap that exists between the work that we do and the faith that we have. And we talked about questions like, does our work matter? And we discovered that our work actually matters more to God than it matters to us. We discovered all these principles throughout the Bible that talk about how seriously God takes our work. Last week, we talked about why is work so hard? And we discovered that, that work is actually the context for the first sin. We discovered that there's all these temptations that we face in our work, and we realized that in Christ, we can overcome those temptations. And today, we're going to bring this series to a close, but I have to remind you as we do that, that you're going to be tempted, even in this message, as you've been in the others to write yourself off as not the audience for this message because you go, well, I don't fit the traditional category. So many of you go, well, I'm retired, so this doesn't apply to me. Or I'm a stay-at-home mom, so this doesn't apply to me. Or I'm taking care of someone for my work, it doesn't apply to me. And that's fine. You can choose to check out and not spend the next 35 minutes engaged. Or you can listen in and realize that maybe God has something for you, even if your work doesn't fit a traditional category. Because I would say that no matter what your work looks like today or tomorrow or yesterday, it matters more than you realize. And this is why, and this is our last big idea of the series, that from God's perspective, our earthly work is part of what he's building for eternity. From God's perspective, the work we do here on earth, it's a part of and included in what he is building for eternity. And that's why today's message is titled, What Difference Does Our Work Make? Because we're not just working here in an earthly way. We're a part of what God's doing for eternity. And so our work is going to last much longer than we realize. And today I want to share with you five ways that we get to make a difference in our work. I shared earlier in the series that for me, I made a shift years ago, moving away from have to to get to. And I've heard from some of you how that language has showed up in your, your, kids, your kids' language, your language. One family was playing Monopoly during this series and, and, and uh, one of the kids you know, had, to, had to give away some money in Monopoly. And he's like, I hate having to give you this money. He's like, no, 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 you don't have to give me your money. You get to give me your money. So we're even changing the way we play Monopoly at Cornerstone. So I love, I love this. So the first thing we get to do when we make, make a difference in our work is we get to see people as God does. We get to see people as God does. A few weeks ago, we celebrated baptism here at Cornerstone. And one of the verses we always share when we baptize is 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. If you've been baptized, you probably have heard that verse stated. Well, right before that verse comes a very important verse that we tend to skip over. And that verse is 2 Corinthians 5.16. In the New Living Translation, it says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. And the truth of 2 Corinthians 5 is that the people that we look at, we can see in our own power and strength, without a whole lot of work or intentionality, in a very worldly way. We can just see them as a person, or we can just see them as an object. We can just see them as a means to an end. We can see them as somebody who's getting in our way, somebody who's frustrating us, somebody who's annoying us, somebody who's driving us nuts. We can see them in that ways, and all of us in our lives see people that way. 
But the scriptures call us to regard people and see people not according to a worldly point of view, but according to a larger point of view. C.S. Lewis sums up this perspective well in one of his books. He says, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals that we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. What Lewis is trying to describe is that every single person you have ever encountered, every person sitting in this room and watching online, and every person you will encounter is an eternal being. They will spend eternity somewhere. And they will become an immortal horror or an everlasting splendor. And we are invited here and now. We get to see people now in light of what they will look like eternally. And so you have an opportunity in your work, whatever your work looks like, to see the people you look at and interact with through the lens of eternity. To literally see them through their creator who made them and who will decide where they spend eternity. You have never worked with, talked with, been served by a mere mortal. Every person you work with, including that really annoying one, will one day be an immortal horror or an everlasting splendor. And today you get to see them the way Jesus does as you do your work. It changes everything if you begin to see people that way. Number two, the second thing we get to do in our work is people get to see Jesus in us. Not only do we get to see them in light of eternity, but we get an opportunity up close to allow people to see Jesus in us. In that same book, just a few chapters before, in 2 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul said, speaking to the church in Corinth, the believers there, he said, you are, yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. He says, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The message really renders this verse really well in its translation. The message says, your very lives are a letter that anyone can read by just looking at you. When you go to work, whatever your work is, whether you leave your house or not, the people who see you are reading you like a letter. And they have an opportunity to see Jesus in you by just looking at you. That's the challenge of, of doing work alongside people. You get to know them really, really well. Whether you want to or not, or they want to get to know you or not, it just happens. You go through stress together. You go through struggle together. You go through difficulty together. Even in a family. I mean, you get to know each other, warts and all. And people have a chance by looking at you to see who you truly are. And that means that place is an opportunity for you to share your faith in your words and in your actions. Ten days ago, I had an opportunity to watch the funeral of the first pastor that I didn't call dad. 
This man is Dan Yuri. He was my pastor from 2002 to 2013. I was the son of a pastor, and so he was the first pastor that I didn't go home with at the end of the day after church on Sundays. It was a new experience for me. And for 11 years, Dan was my pastor. Seven of those, he was my boss. And uh, after a number of years, you start to hear some phrases over and over that pastors say. I'm sure I have some phrases that I just say over and over. Like, yeah, that's a Scottism, you know, and you just, you hear that. Well, one of the things that I remember hearing Dan say over and over again was every member of the body of Christ is both a minister and a missionary. Dan burned into our minds and our hearts this belief that the moment we surrendered our life to Jesus, we were immediately called as ministers and missionaries. That those titles weren't reserved for special spiritually elite people who went to, you know, spiritual workplaces. He believed that every one of us was a minister of Jesus and a missionary. And he said we were just all cleverly disguised as different things. You're a minister of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as a plumber. You're a missionary of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as a stay-at-home mom. You're a, a minister of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as somebody who works for the IRS. I know some of these are harder to believe than others, but... <laughs> but it's true. And people get to see Jesus in you. As a pastor, I've had the privilege of hearing hundreds of testimonies. People sharing the stories of how they came to faith in Jesus Christ. And the one testimony I have never heard was the testimony that didn't involve another person. I have yet to hear somebody tell a story that just involved them and the Holy Spirit in a hill by themselves without anybody else. Everybody's story involves somebody there was somebody I knew and they showed me this. There's somebody I knew and they told me this. There's somebody I knew and they invited me. There's somebody I knew and they shared with me. There's somebody I knew and they didn't give up on me. There's somebody I knew and they prayed for me. With every testimony, there's a person involved. And in the vast majority of them, it was somebody who was a minister and a missionary cleverly disguised as something else. And when you change your view to adopt the view that people are going to get to see Jesus in you, it changes how you show up to work. In Romans 10, the Apostle Paul says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they believe in him in Jesus of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. People get to see Jesus in us when we connect our faith to our work. Number three, we get to influence people we've never met. We get to influence people that we have never met. I read through the book of John last year in the weeks leading up to Easter, and one of the things I was fascinated by was what I would call the concentric or the rippling effect of Jesus encountering a person. The beginning of John, you see Jesus meet a man named Andrew, and he goes and finds his brother named Simon, and he brings him to Jesus. In John chapter 4, Jesus goes to a well, and he meets a woman there who was trying to avoid everybody else. And that encounter with that woman sends her back into the town saying, come meet this man I met named Jesus. 
In John chapter 5, there's a man who's literally living out in the hills because he's possessed by demons and he's naked and crazy. And Jesus heals him of his demons and he sends him back into town with clothes on. And that man begins to tell everybody he's met about Jesus. Again and again in the scriptures, there are people that Jesus didn't meet, but who met Jesus because they met the people who met Jesus. And we forget that when we do work, whatever that work is, we're not just impacting the people in front of us. We're impacting the people who are impacted by the people we're impacting. Patrick Lencioni is one of the top writers about work today. He writes about business and leadership. He's written, I think, 12 books by now. They've sold over 6 million copies. He's my favorite speaker because uh, he has, like, ADD, and so he'll, like, just be talking all over the place, and he's really funny and self-deprecating. And I was listening to an interview with him last year, and he made a comment that was like a throwaway line. He just kind of made a comment and kept going, but the interviewer stopped him because what he said was so profound. He said, my dad hated work. He had a miserable job. And he had a miserable boss. And it affected my life and home. He said, part of the reason I got into the work that I do, consulting and helping companies be better, is I was tired of what I watched my dad experience every day. And then he said these words, if my dad had a better boss, he would have been a better dad. I don't think that miserable boss that Pat Lencioni's dad had had any idea that the way he was treating his employees was changing the future of their life. I'm sure he was just stressed by trying to get things done and trying to carry things out and trying to hit the bottom line and trying to hit numbers for that quarter. But what he didn't recognize is that Mr. Lencioni was going home to little Patrick. And the way he treated them was changing Patrick's future. And the thing is, all of us have little Patricks that our life and work is impacting. We just have no idea what their names are. They're the people we're influencing that we've never even met. Years ago, I took a photo of a quote. I don't know who said it, but the quote was, the best way for a non-churchgoer to experience the gospel is to be loved by their boss the way Christ loved the church. So if you're a boss, I know that you've got a ton of stress on you. I know you've got demands and expectations, but if, if people work for you, you have an opportunity to change the trajectory of their families by how you love them like Christ loved the church. There's people who you don't know their names, but they sure know your name. Because you're just at the dinner table when they go home or on the last day of vacation when they have to go back to work. But I would just go beyond the boss, coworkers. There's people that you work with that because of how you're treating them, how you're loving them, how you're praying for them, how you're serving them, you're not just impacting them, you're impacting everybody else that they know because you're changing the way they see themselves and the way they do their work. They might even just be employee or mom or coach, or volunteer. You could insert whatever word you want there for what you are. But with the people that you're around, if you love them the way that Christ loved the church in a self-sacrificial way, you will not just impact them. You will impact everyone else they know. 
And who knows that maybe when it's time for you to leave this earth, there'll be people who step up and say, that person didn't even know my name, but they changed my life because of how they cared for my mom or my dad or my brother or my friend. Friends, when you see people as God does and you see your work as God does, you'll recognize that everything you do is worship and every job is a ministry. That's why that view is so important. Because if you could see your work the way God does and you could see the people around you the way that God does, you wouldn't just say, I'm, I'm nobody. And this doesn't matter. You would recognize the work you're doing is an act of worship to God and the job or the role or the task you have is a ministry in his name. Number four, we get to serve our neighbor as an act of worship. We get to serve our neighbor as an act of worship. Last week, I read from Colossians chapter 3, and the Apostle Paul is like Dan Uri and me. He repeats the same thing over and over again in his letters. And in 1 Corinthians 10, we read Paul saying, So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Very similar to what he says in Colossians 3. He says, Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. He says, I'm doing all of this as an act of worship to glorify God, and I'm not taking the advantages that I have for myself. No, I'm doing all I can so that I can set up the opportunity for people to take a step closer to God through the work that I'm doing. I'm serving them through my work. And sadly, we live in a world that has, has bought into the lie of pragmatism, that, that whatever is the best way to get things done, we ought to use that way to get things done, even if there is collateral damage. You know, we all know that the words of Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. But it, we're increasingly becoming a world where we only love the neighbors who look like ourselves. We're only loving the neighbors who agree with us politically. We're only loving the neighbors who have a vision of the future that lines up with ours. And Jesus didn't say, love your friends and people who vote like you. He said, love your neighbors and love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I have know of no better place to do that than our work. Then in that place, we have a chance to serve people and care for them and do our work, not for our own self-interest, but for theirs. I think it was Lewis, who, sorry, it was actually Martin Luther, the founder of the Protestant Reformation, who said, the prince should think, Christ has served me and made everything to follow him. Therefore, I should also serve my neighbor. I should protect my neighbor and everything that belongs to him. This is why God has given me this office, this role, and that I have it, that I may serve God. That would be a good prince and ruler. When a prince sees his neighbor oppressed, he should think, that concerns me. I must protect and shield my neighbor. The same is true for the shoemaker, the tailor, the scribe, or the reader. Pause. I want to go back in time and just be a reader for a living. How awesome would that be? 
if he is a Christian tailor, he will say, I make these clothes because God has bidden me to do so, so that I may earn a living, so that I can help and serve my neighbor. It's this view that's present in these words from Luther and then from the scriptures from Paul that says, my work is not just for me. It's a platform that I have that I can use to open up an opportunity to change someone's life. And sadly, I think for many today in our culture, the win is having a fish sticker on our business vehicle. Having a Christian business. And sadly, if you're in business today, you know how poor a reputation Christian businesses have in the business community. It's similar to the reputation that Christian art has in the art community. The art community calls it an oxymoron. The Christian art is not really art at all. And many times we think the win is coming to the place where somebody knows we're a Christian. I had a man come to my house a few years ago, and he was so excited to learn he was a pastor. And we had this whole conversation around him being a Christian and me being a pastor. It was great. The only problem was he did really bad work. And I could care less that he was a Christian. I hired him to do a job. And he didn't do it well. And that reflected back on his faith. Friends, people won't care about your faith if you don't care about the quality of your work. And if your work is being done as a worship to God, it should be the best work. Now, as a recovering workaholic and the descendant of a bunch of workaholics known as the savages, I will tell you that you can literally kill yourself trying to do the best work. But if your work is being done for God, you ought to care about the quality of your work. And you ought to work in such a way that people will ask why. Because nobody asks why somebody does bad work. They just don't ask you to work for them again. But if the way that you do your work stands out, if the way that you show up in the midst of it stands out, no matter what your work is, I mean, there's people that I look at how they care for their yard and I just go, wow. Or their garden or their car. And when you watch somebody who does work really, really well, goes, man, why do you do that? Why do you care so much? Why do you work that hard? Why do you go the extra mile? Why do you not cut corners? And when they ask why, you can say, well, I wasn't really doing this work for you. I was doing it for God. And I'm glad that you like it. But at the end of the day, what he thinks I care about most. And I'm going to be accountable to him one day for the work that I do. So I'm glad that it helped you. But at the end of the day, I'm not on the line just for you. I'm on the line for him. Fifth and final One is that we get to be part of God's eternal building project. We get to be part of God's eternal building project. Near the end of his letter to the first Corinthian church, the apostle Paul says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. 
I don't know what the work is that God has called you to, but I promise at some point you have said, this doesn't matter. Why am I working so hard? Why am I putting myself through all of this? Why does this matter? This doesn't, you know, another TPS report? Come on, this doesn't really matter. And yet in the scriptures here at the end of his writing to this church, the church in Corinth, he says, don't give up, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. It's the question we started with, with niggle. Does this matter? Why did I do all of this? Well, the story continues about Niggle, and sadly, Niggle does die. And in this fictional story, he goes through a series of adventures until he wakes up one day in a new land. And it's a beautiful green field. And he's just amazed by it. And in the distance, he sees something he wants to explore, and he starts walking through the field. And as he gets closer and closer, he sees this magnificent tree, and he's just amazed by the beauty of this tree. But he has this striking feeling that this tree is familiar. And as he gets closer and closer to the tree, his breath is taken away. The tree is his tree. Standing in front of him in living color is the tree he spent his life painting. And as he looks closer, he sees my leaf. And his leaf is there. And he stands there for a long time, just marveling at the unfinished work that he started, but God finished. Back on earth, his neighbors take the canvas he painted his tree on and they use it to fix his neighbor's roof. Later on, a piece of the leaf that he painted was put in a museum only for the museum to burn down. And within a few months and a few years, everyone who ever knew Niggle dies. And his memory fades. And it literally burns up like the artwork in the museum. And on earth, no one remembers the name Niggle. But that doesn't matter to Niggle. Because where he is, his tree is too. As I was reading that story, I was reminded of a passage in 1 Corinthians 3, which says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest or evident for the day, which is the reason why it's capitalized is the day of judgment, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. 
Scholars call this passage and this view that's reflected in Leaf by Niggle, this idea that we are in fact building for the kingdom of God. That the reason why Paul says that our labor is not in vain is that the things that we are doing in this life that are built on the foundation of Jesus Christ are part of his eternal building project and they will last. And so many of us have sat in churches like this and heard pastors like me tell you that it's all going to burn so the only thing that matters is saving souls. And that's wrong according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The things that are built on the foundation that is Christ, they endure, and our labor is not in vain. Writing on this, New Testament theologian N.T. Wright says, I have absolutely no idea how it may be that a great symphony or painting or small act of love and gentleness shown to an elderly patient dying in the hospital or William Wilberforce campaigning to end the slave trade, or the sudden generosity which makes a street beggar happy all day, how any or all of those things find a place in God's eventual kingdom. He's the architect, not me. He has given us instructions on the little bits of stone we are meant to be carving. How he puts them together is his business. Friends, we serve a God who wastes Nothing. Nothing. And you may feel like the work you're doing to raise your kids doesn't matter. He wastes nothing. They're never even going to know, Scott, that I'm taking care of them because they can't even remember anything anymore. We serve a God who wastes nothing. God, you don't know my boss and my work and the stuff that I'm expected to do tomorrow, and I can already feel the weight of it, your labor is not in vain. And your earthly work is part of his eternal building project. And when you do it on the foundation that is Christ, nothing is wasted. Nothing is in vain. Each week in the series, we've invited somebody up to share a little bit of their story. And so I'm going to invite Marshall Case up right now. Would you welcome him to the stage? Marshall, she has your microphone right behind you. Marshall, I wanted to make sure in this series that we talked about work. We didn't just talk about people who went to traditional nine-to-five jobs. We want to make sure we people who were doing work that fit all kinds of pictures. And so tell us a little bit about the work that you did before you retired and, and what brought you to Cornerstone. Okay, thank you. Um, for the last 20 years of my full-time career, I was a, a human resources manager in Orange County. And in 2014, uh, my wife Susie and I retired and moved here, and uh, we've been at Cornerstone since. Now, you told me when I first moved here, we had a conversation, and you were, you were struggling through the beginning stages of retirement, and it wasn't going very well. You said it kind of surprised you. You weren't ready for it. Right. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. It did surprise me. It was uh, a more difficult transition be- than I expected because... I had naively thought you just seamlessly went into retirement and everything was beautiful. Um, 
But the reason I struggled with it a little bit, you talked last week about four temptations, and the one that really applied to me a lot was my identity uh, was so tied up in my full-time career, and when I retired, I didn't have that identity anymore, so I was uh, struggling. Aimless. Yeah. Now, you said to me that it took you three or four attempts at trying to fill that with like a part-time job to feel like, you know, you were really starting to get some ground underneath you. Did you find the perfect job or did something change? Well, something did change. Uh, I had three jobs or so that weren't really a good fit and and I didn't feel great about. And uh, I asked God to help me make sense of this phase of my life, uh, which seems like a no-brainer, but I was a little bit of a slow learner. And he helped me see that my identity wasn't from my work. It was from him, loved by him as a child of God. And then once I grasped that better, my my work and my activities flowed out of that. And I was much uh, more satisfied and at peace. Now, I'm assuming there's a, a number of people here because I know where we live and I can look out in this room people who have either gone through what you've gone through or they're going to in the next season, what kind of wisdom would you give them from what you've, you've gone through? Well, I would just offer that, that um, again, just know that your identity comes from God. Um, you don't have to prove anything by your work, but your work and your activities can flow out of that identity as somebody who is... Uh, loved by him more than you can imagine. That's pretty profound, Marshall. Well, thanks. It's uh, Like I say, I'm a slow learner, but it was a good lesson. <laughs> so as you've moved out into a, a new identity and you're working from that, and what you do is flowing from that, what is flowing from that? How are you filling your time these days? What are you doing? I have one part-time job with Big Brothers Big Sisters, uh, interviewing adults who want to be a big brother or sister, and then uh, a couple of volunteer activities with a a dog rescue group and also uh, at YRMC with uh, my wife. So how do you you see that as an opportunity to live out your faith in those places? What does that look like in this new season for you? Well, it's just a natural fit, and I think some of the things that you've talked about this morning um, uh, let people see Christ in you, If, if not from specific words, but how you live out your life, live your activities. Just let that, let the peace that knowing where your identity comes from, just let that show through in whatever you do. And I think God helps you find activities that are a good fit with the gifts he's given you. Well, I'm grateful for the work you're doing, and it matters. Thank so you. Thank you, Marshall. Thanks for sharing with us this My morning. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks. Well, if you turn over your handout to the back, um, I have a unique next step that I want to share with you this morning. Typically, we work through three or four of these, and I send you out with some work to do. But today, I've put together a prayer for your work, recognizing that, like Marshall said, our, our work changes in different seasons of life, and it looks different for all of us. Here's a prayer that you could begin to pray today and then tomorrow as you continue to engage your work. And it's like this. It says, God, I am God's best work. And he made me to do great work. 
because of what God has done for me and in me, I have nothing to lose and nothing to prove today. Marshall just said those words to us. And then this is the part that I need your help with because I can't write this for you. The work God is calling me to do in this season of my life is blank. And you're gonna have to put that in there. What's the work that God's called you to do? What's it that he's given you to do in this season? In that work, I will battle the temptation to what? What are you tempted to do in that work that that will keep you from the life and the impact that God wants you to have? Maybe it's defining your identity by your work. Maybe it's working without rest. Maybe it's a sense of despair. At work today, I have the opportunity to what? How does God want to make a difference through you where you are? Because if you're not where you are by accident, if God puts you there, then he has a purpose. And what is that purpose? The prayer ends like this. It says, Jesus, thank you for saving me and trusting this great work to me. And everything I do today, I seek to honor you and help others take a step closer to you. Jesus, help me remember that this work is my ministry and my workplace is holy ground. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I think if you started each day with that prayer, that it would change the posture of your heart and change the nature of your work. Before we close today, I I, I had an idea. It was actually this idea that led to this series in general. I think many times the gap that has been created between faith and work has some culpability in people like me and in the church. You see, when I decided that I was going to be a pastor, I walked down an aisle and it got celebrated. And then I completed my training and there was a whole worship service dedicated to my ordination. And I, I love that moment. I, I don't ever want to give it up. People prayed over me who were no longer here today, including my friend Dan. But part of the problem of the gap between faith and work is created by the church when we carry out the idea that only certain people are sent to or commissioned or ordained in their work. Because we're all sent into our work. So this morning, what I want you to do is I want you to get in your mind what it is the work that God's called you to do. What is it that he's given you to do in this season? And once you have that, I want everybody in the room to stand up. Whether you have your work clarified or not, I want to share a moment with you. And I want you to encourage you to take your palms and put them like this. And I want to commission all of you into the work that God has for you. I want to pray over you this morning and send you out to do that work today. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every person in this room and every person who's watching online. You created them on purpose for a purpose and you've placed them where they are supernaturally and strategically for them to have an impact. God, many of them are discouraged. They're beaten down. They're struggling. They don't see the difference that they're making and they don't see their workplace as your place of impact. I pray that in the days to come, they would begin to see their work and the people there as people that you made in your image and the work you created them to do in this season. Help them to recognize that you have made them a masterpiece. 
You've created them for good work. And this place where they are is the place where you are going to build your kingdom. Help them to remember that their labor is not in vain and that they serve you, a God who wastes nothing. I commissioned them today in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as your sent ones. Just as you sent your Son into the world, we now send them into the world in your name to do your work. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.